Hello and welcome back to EdChoice Chats. I'm your host, Jason Bedrick, Director of Policy at EdChoice, and this is another edition of our Big Ideas series. Today, I'm very happy to be joined by my good friend and mentor, Dr. Matthew Ladner, a fellow at EdChoice who wears many hats, including Executive Director at Redefined. And he is the co-author with yours truly of a new Heritage Foundation report titled, Let's Get Small, Microschools, Pandemic Pods, and the Future of Education in America, which is the subject of today's conversation. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So before we dive into how microschools and pandemic pods are a solution to the problems posed by COVID-19, let's talk a little bit about what were the challenges that parents were facing during the pandemic? Boy, I mean, you know, there were plenty of problems in the system before the pandemic, but the pandemic tended to make a lot of them worse. I think that uh, despite a lot of really heroic efforts on the part of people working in district and charter school, you know, the, the challenges of trying to create an impromptu system of distance learning were just monumental and predictably uneven in schools' ability to overcome them. But you know, the, the system was not designed to deliver digital learning at the drop of a hat <laughs> and uh, all kinds of problems like access to devices and internet access and, you know, just everything in between. So it was a very trying time. And it's, I think, just fascinating that, um, you know, I think it's fair to say that a lot of families had a pretty rough experience with digital learning in the spring. And in the summer, as sort of an example of spontaneous order, we started to see the rise of these pandemic pods just uh, around the country all on their own. Right. And parents were not looking forward to sending their kids back to school in the fall. We have a poll from EdChoice that 80% of parents of K-12 children were concerned that their child might be exposed to coronavirus in school. They weren't too excited about going back to school. On the other hand, they weren't terribly excited about having the schools closed and doing distance learning as well. You know, so about seven in 10 parents said that they were concerned about their kids falling behind academically. And we see that there's quite a bit of evidence that that's actually the case, that they lost a lot of learning during the spring. So you've got this study from researchers at Brown and the University of Virginia saying that students were likely to return to fall 2020 with approximately 63 to 68% of the learning gains in reading relative to the typical school year, and only about 37 to 50% of the learning gains in math. So far behind where they should be. Researchers at McKinsey said that this was especially troublesome among disadvantaged populations, lower income, people of color. Black students might be behind about 10 months, Hispanic students behind about nine months on average, low-income students generally behind by about a year, you know, so the achievement gaps are widening. So, you know, they don't want to be doing learning at home, distance learning. They also don't want to send their kids back into these large school environments where students may or may not actually be doing a good job of physically distancing. So what do they do? Well, I mean, what we started to see families do around the country was to actually organize themselves into small groups of students, sometimes with one of the parents taking up the role of sort of the 
a teacher or a guide, as they're sometimes called. Sometimes these, these so-called pandemic pods would actually hire a seasoned or experienced teacher. But, you know, these pandemic pods took a lot of different forms. Sometimes the students are just still doing a lot of learning through digital learning with their home school or the school they were enrolled in last year, I guess, maybe we would call it at this point. Sometimes not. But, you know, but even in things, those cases, there's actually like an adult in the room making sure that they stay on task, not just like mom is in another room, you know, and dad is in another room down the hall and they're also at work, right? This right. is like, you know, there's actually somebody who's helping coach them, guide them, even if they are using some digital platform. Yeah, I think one of the interesting ways to think about the micro school trend that we see out there right now is as, you know, working out the kinks of digital learning, right? And if you think back to the sort of naive enthusiasm stage for, say, massive open online courses, right? You'll remember this course, Jason, you know, Stanford's giving away courses for free and everyone can take them and yay, we're all going to have a PhD in quantum mechanics or whatever, right? You know, uh, I was as guilty of that as anyone, by the way, right? And, you know, the reality is, is MOOCs are great for a lot of students, right? And there are a lot of people that have access to college coursework that wouldn't have it otherwise. But the process of education, many people feel very strongly is inherently social, right? That students need classmates, students need in-person access to teachers, right? So the sort of pandemic pod model where you have an in-person guide or teacher and you have a small number of classmates, right? And you can be mixing in digital learning, right? Is a way to kind of take away the problems of digital learning, right? In the sense that, you know, just taking a course online doesn't provide those things. This model does provide those things and actually allows for the creation of some very tight-knit communities, right? Which is something that, that people inherently want. Right. So, I mean, here you've got a solution that actually meets the needs of the families in the pandemic. It's not a very large institution with hundreds of kids running around and you're able to minimize the risk of exposure to the virus. But at the same time, it's not just your kid at home with a laptop and a packet. There's other kids they can socialize with, which was something, you know, parents were also expressing frustration that their kids were feeling isolated socially. So they've got some other kids to socialize with. They've got an actual physical, you know, the teacher in the room who can help coach them and guide them and, and provide that in-person instruction that they need and let parents get back to work, which was something else they were concerned about, that when it's just their kid at home, they need to be there for them. And, you know, I can tell you personally at our house and we at one point, you know, we had four kids, you know, doing Zoom learning with their private school. And there was a lot of time management running from kid to kid and making sure, you know, oh, mom, this thing's not working, right? It's been tough on parents. So this was something that actually worked in the pandemic. Right. That said, microschools were already on the rise before COVID-19. I think this has given a huge boost to them. A lot of parents who otherwise didn't know they existed or wouldn't have considered them said, hey, this is something I want to check out. Why were they already on the rise? What are they doing that's so attractive to families? Yeah, like I started paying attention to this trend back in 2015 when I read an article in Wired magazine 
called The Rise of Homeschooling in Silicon Valley, right? And the author of this piece was, you know, almost apologetic, right? At first he was like, oh, homeschooling, I know what you're thinking, right? But this is not what you're thinking. He featured a family. The father was a software engineer, systems manager, and the mother of the family was a feminist blogger, right? <laughs> these are things are not, we're not sort of the stereotypical homeschoolers of at least of 2015. And the overall vibe that I got reading this article was that basically there's a long established academic literature about enrichment spending in K-12. Okay. And what that literature shows is that high-income Americans are spending more and more and more money on enrichment activities for their K-12 students, right? This could be anything from private tutors to mathnasium to Kumon, the summer camps, you know, very broad definition. That trend amongst lower-income families has been flat over the years, but very steep increase amongst higher-income people. To the point where it was in 2006, it was almost $9,000 per year per family. Okay. This is so ubiquitous that we don't even recognize it for what it is. Right. And uh, because when you hear about it, this is, oh, we're so busy. I'm driving my daughter here. I'm taking my son there. Right. <laughs> that's, that's kind of what we're talking about. But that, in essence, is a, a form of multi vendor education. Okay. And the vibe I got from reading this Wired Magazine article was that the Silicon Valley families had basically could have done that, right? They could have done the typical thing for higher-income Americans where they have their kid attend the school during the day, but then they do all these activities at night, right? And the vibe from this Wired Magazine article was just simply that these people were saying, you know what? Like, the time opportunity cost for putting my kid in the school in a day is too much, We've set up this, you know, homeschooling slash homeschool co-op type situation to the point where we get to do the enrichment type stuff all the time, whether that's field trips or projects. A featured family was setting up what they called hacker spaces for K-12 students, right, um, where they did, you know, robotics and coding and things like that. And, you know, to me, it was like, a bell was just ringing in my head, like, wow, this is something, this is, this is really going somewhere. So before the pandemic, there was already this trend towards establishing small, you know, the line between homeschool co-op and small private school had started to blur. We started to see multiple different models of people doing this around the country. And, you know, pandemic pods did not just spring up out of nowhere, like, you know, Athena being born from the skull of Zeus, right? Um, that was sort of the thing that was already bubbling out there in the space. And um, necessity is the mother of invention. And suddenly people found themselves in the spring, often very dissatisfied with the digital learning they got. And when people, you know, got online and described to them a pandemic pod and, and that their children could have socialization, uh, they could have classmates, they could have that element, but in a lower risk environment, they were like, sign me up, <laughs> right? And so that's like a, a quick version of how I think we got to here.
Right. And of course, there's things like, you know, just the flexibility, the ability to customize the personalized attention and a switch to like mastery based learning as opposed to seat time in the you know, so called Carnegie units where all the kids that are the same age are moving at the same pace across all classes at the same time. And, you know, and that means that some kids inevitably are going to be falling behind and struggling to keep up and other kids are going to be, you know, way ahead of their average peer. And so they're terribly bored. This allows them to go at their own pace. So they're never, they're never too bored and they're never struggling. They're challenging themselves, but they're going at whatever pace they want. You visited a school. We didn't talk about this in the paper, but I'd like to talk about it on the podcast. You visited a micro school in Connecticut that blew my mind. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, it's, it's called Workspace in rural Connecticut. It's like an it's, airplane hangar or something, right? It's actually like housed in a big, giant red schoolhouse, right? <laughs> um, and it's a fascinating model. It's K-12. I wouldn't even necessarily call it a school. It's kind of a school. But the way it works is it's 95% of the teaching going on is being done by parents. The kids are basically signing up for classes almost in a college-style fashion, right? And, you know, it's really, uh, they have guides to help you kind of like put together a coherent set of classes and coursework and whatnot. There are mechanisms whereby the students review the teachers, so to speak. So I might go teach a class there, right? And I might think I'm the greatest teacher ever, but if they don't agree with me, then guess what? You know, like uh, there's a minimum number of kids that have to sign up or the course doesn't make, again, kind of like college. Right. The Spaces also has a business incubator. I met two senior kids that were running a real estate business where they're using drones to photograph houses and, and had a website built uh, and were running their business out of the space. And then to facilitate parent participation in teaching, it's also a co-working space, right? So people can run their business out of the space and say, oh, look, it's two o'clock. It's time for me to go teach algebra, walk out the door, teach algebra, <laughs> right? It was absolutely fascinating. And it was very apparent that very tight-knit community, lots of student activities. They basically told us that they have to take a broom and swap the kids out of the door out at 6 o'clock at night because they don't want to leave. And maybe the most interesting thing was that someone asked our guides about summer. They said, what do you do in summer? And they kind of stared at us, lost and blinking. And they said, oh, yes, yes, summer, that's a thing. Well, so around here, um, summer's kind of like any other time. There's still courses being offered. You could take them if you want. You don't take them if you don't want to. If you want to travel, that's fine. You can, right? So the very choose-your-own-adventure, very tight-knit community and a very interesting way to structure education. And one thing we talked about in the paper as well is that this isn't just good for the students and the families. It's also good for the teachers. So maybe you can address that. Yeah. So last year, I was listening to the radio here. I was listening to a talk radio show here in Phoenix, Arizona. And the host had a call in from a gentleman who identified himself as a 44-year classroom veteran teacher here in the state of Arizona. And this gentleman offered the opinion that what was wrong with education was not 
money. Okay. And he said very clearly, because money has always been tight. Okay. He said, the problem with education today is that the joy has been strangled out of the profession. And I happened to be listening to that radio program about a week after I had visited a micro school that was operating out on the Apache Reservation in Eastern Arizona. And it was just so striking to me because what I saw at that micro school was not joy being strangled out of, out of the teacher's profession, right? Quite the opposite. The process, and this is, you know, like a, a very politicized thing, obviously, but, but one of the things that we will often hear talking points from, from, for instance, the education unions, is things about the teacher shortage, right? The teacher shortage is always framed as a financial issue. We'll hear things like, well, there's X number of people certified to teach in state X, but they're not teaching. Ergo, what we need to do is put a lot more money into the system to lure them back into teaching, right? But when you do surveys, job satisfaction surveys of teachers, and this has been done for decades, right? What you find is, is that money, of course, is a factor, right? Every, every money is a factor in any profession, right? But it's never at the top of the list of what people don't like. And uh, one of the statistics we cited in the paper, Jason, was a survey from the National Center for Education Statistics. And they found that only 12% of teachers feel like they have a high degree of autonomy. They feel scripted. They feel controlled. They feel sort of, you know, like beat down, right? And, you know, there's no reason for me to believe that, you know, you can just money whip people back into that profession that they left because largely because they were unhappy, okay? So I think how all of this relates to micro schools is, is that these micro schools are giving teachers the opportunity to run their own school free of bureaucracy, right? To be their own boss, to hang their own shingle, so to speak, and to kind of rediscover the joy of teaching, right? Because that is the main thing that attracts people into the teaching profession. No one ever in their life, you know, was a, you know, a 21-year-old college student and got up and, you know, from bed in the morning and stretched and yawned and said, you know, Oh, I want a state pension. That's what I want to achieve in life, right? You know, this is uh, people go into teaching uh, because they love being around kids, because they want to help kids and whatnot. And they very often feel stymied and prevented from doing that by this gigantic, impersonal, bureaucratic system. Okay. So the micro school trend is a gigantic opportunity for educators. And it's a way for us to access some of those teachers who otherwise won't come back. You know, even before the pandemic, we had a huge problem looming on our hands in the form of the baby boom generation retiring, right? A whole general, gigantic generation of teachers, you know, many of whom were already eligible for retirement. Once the pandemic hit, I heard this anecdotally from a lot of people I know that teach in public education where a lot of teachers kind of said, well, look, man, if you're eligible to retire, what better time to do it than right now, right? 
So we need a lot of those people. We do need some of those people to come back, but we could have those people come back in charge of their own education community, showing us their own vision for what a high quality education looks like, not the states or the federal governments or the local school districts or their unions or all this multiple generators of red tape um, that have sort of strangled the joy out of the system. Yeah, and, and that survey you mentioned from the National Center for Education Statistics, as you noted, 12% of teachers said they had a high degree of autonomy. More than six out of 10 felt they had a low degree of autonomy. And when you compared the satisfaction levels of these two groups, the low autonomy teachers were five times more likely to report being dissatisfied with their job as those who had higher autonomy. So it really does seem to be a driving factor. Now, one of the major critiques of these micro schools and especially the pandemic pods is the equity question and the accessibility question. So, I mean, the New York Times basically said that, uh, you know, rich white families are doing this and this is going to widen the gap between their kids and the children of lower income people of color. Now, of course, buried in there is a concession that what the district schools are offering right now is far inferior to that which the micro schools and the learning pods are providing. But even setting that aside, is there a legitimate question of equity here? And if so, what's the best way to address it? Yes, in short, there certainly are very serious equity issues here, but you can't take seriously those that don't want to address them, right? You know, for instance, some families can easily afford to pay a microschool teacher out of their own pockets, some can't. Internet device access is more readily available to some families than others. There's a whole list of things like this, right? All of these things can be addressed, but the unstated assumption of many of the pieces criticizing pandemic pods, Jason, that I've read, seems to be we shouldn't allow people to do this, right? If we allow people to do this, then the gap will widen, right? Well, you know, we can't stop people from doing this, right? You know, people are free individuals and they are trying to protect the interests of their own children. And we should not get in the way of that. What we should do is make resources available for low-income families so that they can pay a teacher, so that they do have access to devices and whatnot. This is being done around the country by some school districts, by charter schools in some cases, and through the use of private choice programs in some cases, right? There's more than one way to solve these problems. The problems are real, but it's very important that we not stop at the let's wring our hands and, and tut tut this, right? <laughs> Rather, what we need to do is to have a thoughtful plan to address the equity issues. Right. And so we've seen that the civil society is rallying. We cite a whole bunch of examples in our paper. I'm not going to read all of them, but, uh, you know, for example, you've got the homeschool pod grants from the National Parents Union, which is providing hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of grants that they're distributing to low-income families so that they can get access to these you see there's a group Stronger Together uh, ATX in Austin, Texas, which is connecting lower-income families with pods that are willing to accept students at little or no charge. You've got the community learning sites by the Mind Trust in Indianapolis, which is providing you know, actual sites that the low-income families can use for their potting. 
And then you have even some states or, or local governments that have decided that they're going to get into this potting. So for example, Southern Nevada Urban Micro Academy in the city of North Las Vegas is now for just $2 a day providing K-12 students with pods of about up to 18 students. And they're even providing needs-based scholarships if that's too much. So there are some that are doing this sort of thing, but there are also some things that policymakers can do. So maybe you can talk about the way that families in Arizona in particular are accessing microschools. Sure. We have school districts in Arizona that have partnered with you know, sort of microschool service providers to create pods for their own students. We have similarly happening through the charter school mechanism. There are charter schools that partner with these people that have a lot of deep experience with how to run these micro schools. And then we also have students accessing them through the ESA program. That's the Empowerment Scholarship Account Program. It's a form of K-12 education savings account where 90% of the state portion of per-pupil funding follows the child into a restricted use account that they can use for tuition, homeschool expenses, online learning, tutors, textbooks, educational therapy, and more, right? But go ahead, continue. Yeah. yeah. So it's unfortunate that uh, there is some controversy surrounding these things in Arizona. There was a proposal to expand the number of district students that would be able to access micro schools in the Mesa Unified School District that, you know, elicited a lot of opposition in a school board meeting, and they decided not to move forward with the project. Uh, it's unfortunate those students would have remained a part of the uh, enrollment count of the Mesa Unified School District, and instead they might be, you know, <laughs> plotting anyway just without Mesa, right? So um, it's uh, uh, we do see. I know in Indianapolis there's um, both a partnership with the school district and the philanthropic. I think it's the Mind Trust that partnered to create pods uh, for students. You know, and that project is really focused on the most vulnerable students. You know, as bad as the pandemic shutdown was for general education students, it was a catastrophe for students with disabilities and special needs. However bad Zoom learning is for most students, there's a lot of special education therapies uh, that, that, you know, just don't translate to additional format, right? And, um, you know, it, it was, it was, profoundly disruptive for those families. So, you know, the, the Indianapolis project actually focused on creating pods for children with disabilities and also homeless children, right? It's one thing to say, hey, you're going to learn at home. What, what if you don't have a home, <laughs> right? You know, so those kids needed somewhere to go. And so it was wise for the district to set up, I think they called it learning centers, but, you know, basically it's the same concept, right? the safe place where students can go with adult supervision and participate in digital learning, you know, with device and internet access and these things. We have examples of districts like in Houston partnered with churches to do these similar sort of activities. So it is certainly possible to be very mindful of equity issues and to address them, right? But too much of what I see, I would perhaps a bit uncharitably describe as people saying equity issues are so important that we refuse to do anything about them. 
Of course, you don't hear those same people saying that equity issues are so important we should shut down the district school system because uh, lower income families are assigned to poor performing schools and higher income families are assigned to much better performing schools or at least have access to them. That we don't hear, but uh, what we do hear is if they leave the system, suddenly equity becomes a barrier. You, you almost might say it's pretextual uh, and that uh, they're not as serious about equity as they are about uh, protecting a system, but that would, that would be perhaps cynical and, and uncharitable to, to make such a statement as that. So I guess uh, just in closing, to sharpen the question again, so what would your final thoughts be? What would your advice be for policymakers that want to make sure that families do have access to these types of learning pods? Well, we've seen some really good action by a number of governors around the country to use some of the federal dollars related to education in the pandemic era to help families directly to give families, you know, direct control over their money and allow them to figure out what works for them <laughs> instead of trying to do it from the top down. I think that that's a wise course. You know, I think that the most important thing for policymakers to do is to allow this trend to continue, right? To stay out of the way, right? I mean, what we're seeing right now is an amazing example of permissionless innovation, right? Families came up with these institutions on their own to suit their own needs. And there will inevitably be attempts to quash it, right, out of fear, out of a misguided urge to sort of protect the status quo. That is a dark instinct that we should suppress as best we can. I'll close with this. It's the way we open our paper, and it's a quote from Alexis de Tocqueville in Democracy in America. And he writes, as soon as several of the inhabitants of the United States have conceived a sentiment or an idea that they want to produce in the world, they seek each other out. And when they have found each other, they unite. From then on, they are no longer isolated men, but a power one sees from afar, whose actions serve as an example, a power that speaks into which one listens. Hopefully the policymakers will be listening to the families that are seeking each other out to form these incredible learning pods for their children. Our guest today has been Dr. Matthew Ladner. He is a fellow here at EdChoice, as well as executive director of Redefined. Our paper is Let's Get Small, Microschools, Pandemic Pods, and the Future of Education in America, which you can find at the Heritage Foundation website. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. This has been another edition of EdChoice Chats. If you have any other ideas for authors you'd like us to interview for the Big Idea series, please send them to media at edchoice.org and be sure to subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcast. Follow us on social media at EdChoice and don't forget to sign up for our emails on our website. Thank you. We'll catch you next time. Thank <laughs> you.